Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today we're going to look at two very interesting people. Plotinus, first of all, as um, a very important Greek philosopher, and then Augustine. Uh, And we have podcasts already on Augustine, so this one will probably come... I'm going to slide this either right before or right after Augustine in my um, in my going through uh, Western thought. And um, Plotinus is a really important person that we don't know a whole lot about. Um, I often kind of associate him with Plato because their names just kind of sound similar, Plato and Plotinus. Also because uh, Plotinus, as we're going to see, um, was a major disciple of Plato and um, kind of transferred his knowledge on to a new generation. Um, When we get into this, what we're going to find is that um, Plotinus is actually kind of a difficult subject for Christians. Um, It's not known by a lot of Christians, but once you really start studying Plotinus, it can be disconcerting, unsettling. Um, for a number of reasons. First of all, um, he had a trinity within his philosophy before Christians had a really well-defined trinity. Um, And in fact, his philosophy was explicitly used by Origen to try and explain the trinity. Um, And so I, you know, as I was studying um, uh, Plotinus for this paper, stumbled upon one uh, atheist who was also surveying the material and he said matter-of-factly well Plotinus had the had the trinity and that's where Christians got it from just bang bang click drag and drop Um, and you'll come across that sort of an idea Uh, if you're certainly if you're studying Christianity in a secular setting um, you're likely to have at least somebody bring this thought up that um, you know the the idea of the trinity basically came from Plotinus and not from uh, you know, the apostles or from uh, from Jesus himself. The second one that we're going to spend more time on today is Plotinus's influence on Augustine. And you might not, depending on your background, you might not feel like this is a really big deal. But Augustine, after, you know, Jesus and Paul, is the most important person in the West, in, in the history of, of Western Christianity, at least, Uh, I mean, maybe Luther is more important, but Luther and Calvin really based their beliefs on Augustine's writings. Uh, Augustine really is is the guy. He's the the one that that so much of our theology goes back to. And uh, as we're going to see, Augustine was very influenced um, by Plotinus, especially in his early Christianity. But there were deep marks left by Plotinus's thought that continued throughout the rest of his life. Um, and specifically on the problem of pain, which was Augustine's big hang-up, as we're going to see. But the problem of pain and why God would allow pain and suffering in the world and the explanation that Augustine came up with is still central and still fundamental to how we understand that question. And that question gets right back to the heart of the gospel. It gets right back to why would God allow sin in the world? Why would, how can a good God um, allow, you know, pain and suffering? Well, because of free will. Okay, well, 
you know, and then free will is necessary for love, and, and um, you know, God created free will, and uh, it's creatures that, that chose evil. This explanation, as we're going to find out, uh, was developed by Augustine with reliance on Plotinus. And so if, if the source is bad, then is the theory bad? And if that theory is bad, um, a lot of our faith would start to shake and waver um, if we don't have a really good answer to this question. Um, where does, what, how does God, or, or how could a good God allow pain? Uh, if we take out that, that free will explanation, um, it's not clear what we, we would have in its place. And um, a lot of other things would waver at the same time. Before I get into this um, this paper, I do want to mention um, the genetic fallacy. Now, the genetic fallacy is, um, you know, in la- in logic, there's there's a certain discipline you can study philosophy um, in one of the sub or or mathematics or whatever. And one of the subdivisions of philosophy is logic. Um, how to make your case, how to prove your point. Um, and a subdivision within logic is logical fallacies. These are certain ways that arguments go wrong. Um, and uh, these are certain things that people commonly say that don't make any sense. Um, and one really common logical fallacy is the genetic fallacy. Uh, it's the belief that because you got your ideas from a bad place, those ideas are bad. Um this is often used against Christians. For example, uh, I have a podcast earlier, just a short one on uh, Richard Dawkins and the genetic fallacy, because Richard Dawkins says to Christians, look, the only reason you're a Christian is because you were raised in a Christian home. If you were raised in a, in a Hindu or a Sikh home, you'd be a Sikh. And this is this is the genetic fallacy. Um, it doesn't matter where I learn my beliefs. What matters is whether my beliefs are true or not. It doesn't matter where I learn the multiplication table. It matters whether or not the multiplication table is true. Um, and uh, so, you know, I'm not sure I mentioned that in the paper, so I wanted to mention that because I think that's really um, the most important thing we can say about uh, this relationship between Plotinus and Augustine. Um, so that being said, by way of introduction here, Let's get into Plotinus, and we may divide this. I might just talk about Plotinus and then stop and then talk about Augustine. We'll see how much time it takes. So um, last thing, by way of introduction, I recorded some podcasts on Plato and Aristotle and some of the pre-Socratics as well. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those um, if you don't have time or don't feel like it, that's fine, but some of the, I'm just going to... I'm just going to roll along and quickly mention Plato and Socrates and Aristotle without going into depth, assuming that you've already listened to these podcasts. So that being said, if Plato and Aristotle are the most important thinkers of the ancient world, St. Augustine could be a close runner-up in brilliance and importance. Often when historians talk about the major thinkers of um, the ancient world, they talk about Plato, Aristotle, and Augustine kind of in the same breath. But far less known is the vital role of Plotinus. He served as a link between Augustine and Plato. 
Plotinus, and Plotinus was to have a lasting influence on Augustine, and through him on the Christian church, especially in the West. Augustine didn't have much of an influence on the Eastern church because he spoke in Latin and not in Greek. This paper will bring illumination to the often overlooked intellectual contribution of Plotinus to the thoughts of Augustine. To that end, it will provide an overview of Plotinus's thought, paying special attention to his use and modification of Plato and Aristotle. It will then turn its attention to Augustine's appropriation or use of Plotinus and the lasting mark he made on the shape of Augustinian theology, so the influence that Plotinus had on Augustine's theology. Section 1, Plotinus, Bibliography. Plotinus was a native of Lycopolis, or Lycon, in Egypt. At the age of 28, he became interested in philosophy and moved to Alexandria to study. After expressing dissatisfaction in several teachers, he found Ammonius Saccus, uh, who lived 175 AD to 240 AD. Um, do want to mention, uh, it's evident in the dates, but just a reminder that this, this is after Christ, um, and, and the Christian movement is well on its way. It's now been 140 years after Jesus died. Um, is when Ammonius Saccus was born. So we're, we're firmly in the 2nd century and on into the 3rd century now. Um, so anyways, uh, Ammonius... Where are we? Yes, Plotinus found Ammonius Saccus, and he declared, Toton exetun, this is the man I was looking for. And he became his pupil for 11 years. This Ammonius Saccus is the identified, probably wrongly, by Eusebius as a lapsed Christian. Eusebius, Eusebius being the church historian who wrote around uh, 320-330 after Christ and uh, chronicled the entire history of the church up to his point. Um, very respected ancient historian uh, who's seen as basically the authority for um, early Christianity, the primary source. Um, so Eusebius also records that Origen, uh, we have a podcast on him, Origen studied alongside of Plotinus, although this may not have been the Christian origin. Um, so I want to highlight there's two mentions by Eusebius uh, of the potential interaction between Christianity and you know the beginnings of Neoplatonism, that Ammonius Saccus might have been a lapsed Christian, although that's debatable, don't know, historians are kind of like, yeah, probably not. Uh, and also that Origen might have studied alongside of Plotinus under Ammonius Saccus. And as we're going to find out, Origen ended up becoming a major uh, early, Christ, early church father. Whether or not this is true, uh, what certainly is the case is that Christianity was a major force at work in the time. Um, and so if somebody like Plotinus, as we're going to find out, is going around, he's researching, he's reading, he's listening to various things. There's no way he did not come in contact with Christianity. Uh, as we're going to... Actually, I didn't mention it. Um, he never specifically mentions Christianity in his writings. Um, one of Plotinus's disciples ends up being very anti-Christian. But Plotinus himself never... It's as though Christianity didn't exist. He just doesn't talk about it. Um, but there's no way he could have grown up 
and not known about Christianity. It was everywhere in North Africa uh, when he was writing in Egypt um, at his at the time. So um, certainly that uh, could help to explain some of the similarities between Christianity and his thinking. It was it was in the water. It was part of of his context. All right. So, anyways, moving on. In 243 AD, Plotinus accompanied the Emperor Gordian on an ill-fated expedition to Persia in order to become acquainted with Persian and Indian philosophy. And as we're going to find out, there's a lot of similarities between Buddhism and Plotinus's thought. Gordian was assassinated and Plotinus fled to Antioch, moving later to Rome. Antioch, of course, being um, where Christians were first called Christians and the center um, of early Christianity and then Rome uh, following it as um, a later center of Christianity. In Rome, Plotinus established a school in AD 244 at the age of 40, where he taught for the rest of his life, which would be uh, another 26 years. Ten years later, he began to write. Plotinus enjoyed the favor of the emperor Gallius and his wife, to the point of nearly being authorized to found the new city as a concrete realization of Plato's Republic. Not only a teacher, Plotinus was a philanthropist supporting orphan children in his home. He served as a spiritual guide to the many who came to him for advice. Mild-mannered and well-spoken, Plotinus had many friends and no enemies. Plotinus is recorded as having no less than four mystical experiences with God near the end of his life. Plotinus died in 270 AD at the age of 66. Plotinus is remembered mostly through the efforts of his de- devoted disciple Porphyry, who wrote a biography of Plotinus's life and preserved texts of Plotinus's writings. Porphyry attempted to sim- systematize Plotinus's writings by recording them in a work consisting in 54 treatises arranged in six groups of nine. The work, which be- became Plotinus's major contribution to philosophy, became known as Enneads, from the Greek Enneas, literally nines. Along with his teacher, Ammonius Saccus, Plotinus is usually considered the founder of Neoplatonism, an intellectual movement which was to have profound impact upon both Christian and non-Christian thought. All right, so now we'll move into explaining, um, <laughs> trying to explain, um, Plotinus and Neoplatonism. So Plotinus saw himself as a faithful recipient and, prote- and progenitor of the teachings of Plato. Um, however, Plotinus also showed significant. Um, Plotinus was also well versed in Aristotle and applied uh, his genius to reconciling the two systems, as well as responding to questions of philosophy and religion which had developed in the 500 years between Aristotle and himself. Um, so Plotinus is usually seen as you know transferring Plato to the, the next generation, and that's how he saw himself. But he also used Aristotle a fair bit, and he kind of brought those two systems together and created his own system. That's what I was trying to say in, in my own wordy way. After Plotinus, all of Platonism and even a good deal of Aristotelianism was flavored by Plotinus's thoughts. It is for this reason that modern historians have attached the title 
Neoplatonism to Plotinus's system. Um, actually, uh, at some points in church history, um, one of the works, I think it was Enneads of Plotinus, uh, was falsely translated into uh, Latin um, with Aristotle's name attached to it. So for a good deal of church history, um, the church actually thought that Plotinus was Aristotle um, and that his work was actually written by Aristotle. Um, so anyways, he, he really became the person that transmitted you know, these earlier thinkers to a next generation, but he left his mark and he changed some of the things that came before him. Like Plato before him, Plotinus attempts to give a complete account of reality and a guide to spiritual life. He rejected both Gnostic dualism and the Christian vision of redemption to present his own system. Plotinus's contribution has been seen as a reintroduction of, religious, of a religious component into Platonic philosophy. Um, due to difficulties in interpretation, there is some debate as to whether Plotinus's system was... Okay, actually, I'm going to back up. So it's important, like some people use Plato as basically a scientific philosophy or like a mathematical almost a pre-scientific scientific way of looking at the world um, and Plotinus's um, contribution to to philosophy was kind of bringing spirituality back into it um, and some disciples of Plato were already doing this um, but he really explicitly said no Ultimately, um, philosophy is about becoming one with the with the one. Um, it, it's about this spiritual journey, very much like a Buddhist um, path to enlightenment. Um, and so, this was very much his contribution to uh, philosophy, uh, reintroducing a religion religious component into Platonic philosophy. Due to difficulties in interpretation, there is some debate as to whether Plotinus's system was pantheistic or theistic. Now, pantheistic means um, God is all and in all, uh, similar to Hinduism. God is, is everything. God is everywhere. God is the trees. God is the rocks. God is the sky. God is every, everywhere and everything. And God is in us, and we just need to realize that God is in us, etc. Um, or theistic. So theism is the belief that there is a God who is separate from the world, or God or gods, that are distinct. There's gods are over there, and the world is over here, and the gods have created the world. So there's some debate as to whether Plotinus saw God or the gods or divinity as being everywhere or as being radically separate and distinct. But it's probably best to interpret Plotinus's thought as an original religious system in its own right. He kind of had his own way of doing things that didn't quite fit in either system, um, which transcends its over and above both categories. But his thoughts can be interpreted either by theists or it can be interpreted by pantheists. And in fact, it has been interpreted by both and it has been used by theists, as we're going to see, and by pantheists. Uh, just a brief mention here that uh, as I was re researching this, I just kind of typed um, Plotinus into the internet and got some podcasts to just kind of hear what people were saying about it. And uh, there was one 
really mystical sort of a podcast. It seemed like a new age or else a Hindu or Buddhist um, podcast. And they were using Plotinus as as one of their scholars that was teaching them how to have enlightenment in a very explicitly religious way, um, helping them meditate and helping them ascend to, you know, higher levels of of, uh, of reality and consciousness. Um, so, you know, his thought can be used in, in that direction. In fact, it goes very naturally that way, as we'll find out. So let let's get into, you know, really the essence of what he believed. For Plotinus, the highest reality is simply the one. Greek, to-en. Or is it hen? To-hen. He is sometimes also called, as he sometimes also called it, the good, the father, or the perfect, the fatherland. But he rarely called it God, although he probably could have. The one is absolutely simple. That is, it has no parts. It exists necessarily eternally and changelessly. Um, When I say it it exists necessarily, that's kind of a philosophical term. Um, That means it's not relying on anything else. Uh, And there's no way that it could not exist. Uh, Something that exists necessarily, it has to exist. And it does exist, and it's not reliant on anything else for existence. So it exists necessarily, eternally, and changelessly. The one is incapable of thought, believe it or not, action or will. Similarly, so let's just get that straight. The one is incapable of thought, action or will. And if you look, if you think about the previous sentence, you'll understand why. If, you know, the the one exists necessarily, eternally and changelessly, if the one had thoughts, then that would be change. Um, If the one had actions, that would be change. If the one had a will, then that would seem to cause change. And so the one doesn't change. It doesn't move. It doesn't even think. It is just doing whatever it does. (laughs) It is just the one. Um, Similarly to Parmenides' monad, not sure if we talked about Parmenides. That's been a while ago. Um, Plotinus's one is completely perfect and is thus both without need of movement and he is incapable of movement. Um, so there's things that you and I can do that the one cannot do because it's outside of his nature or its nature or whatever because it's so perfect it can't think, it can't move, it can't have a will. Um, because any movement would seem to be a movement from a state of perfection to a state of less perfection. So one might be tempted to associate uh, the one with Plato's highest form, which is the form of the good. But this would be a mistake. Plotinus is careful not to identify the one as a form or to say that it has being, as this would include the one in a lower set. But the one must proceed with reality and be its author. So if we said that the one had being, or that it, it the one existed, which is the same thing, um, being itself is a concept, and it, con- all concepts are lower than the one. The one is absolute. Um, and so 
we can't even apply the concept of being or reality to the one because the one transcends that and reality comes out of the one. And you're probably getting, you know, this really sounds sounds similar to, to some Eastern religions and Buddhism, for example. Another major distinction between Plato's form of the good and Plotinus's one is that the one cannot be described in any way whereas Plato did describe the form of the good uh, to some, with some, some describers. And this name, the one, contains really no more than the negation of plurality. If we are led to think positively of the one, name and thing, there would be more truth in silence. So um, Christians have talked sometimes about... Um, and I'm not sure if this comes directly from him or if it was just similar, people thinking similar things. But in speaking of God, there will be some Christians that speak positively about God. These these are the things that God is and does um, and his characteristics. And there's others that say God is so holy that we can't actually speak about God. Uh, and there's what has been called uh, in Latin the via negativa. Um, and that is describing God only negatively things that we can't, that we know that God is not this, we know that God is not that, but who he actually is, is beyond us because he is so transcendent. Um, And so Plotinus is speaking here in very similar ways. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Via Negativa probably had, you know, some influence at least from from Neoplatonism. I could be wrong on that, but I think the timing is about right. Um, and so, you know, he, Plotinus doesn't want to say anything positively about the one. All he wants to say is negative things. The one is not plural. The one is not many. The one is not being. He is above that. Um, this leads to the question of how such an entity could create anything meaningful. How could it could be meaningfully described by human language and how it could be approached? With evident reference to Aristotle's distinction between active and passive potency, Plotinus uses the image of emanation to explain how an impassable entity could create. In this way, all reality flows out of or emanates from the one, but it is not diminished, altered, or in any way changed by these emanations. Indeed, it is not even aware of the emanations being completely impassable and unchangeable. So all of reality is flowing out of the one, whatever this thing is, this tohen, um, but the one is not changed by it. He's not diminished by it. He's not even aware of what's going on. It's just something that, that happens. Um, this is probably a terrible analogy, but kind of like, um, well, I was going to say, <laughs> this is a bad analogy, but it's kind of like body odor, okay? So, you know, somebody's in a room and he's doing his thing and he stinks, and everybody in the room can smell it, <laughs> but this person, you know, is doing his thing, and he's not aware of it, and he's not diminished, like it's not causing him energy or exertion to put out this smell. It's just emanating from him. All right. So in a much more positive way, uh, the the tohen, the one, is emanating everything. All reality comes out of him, or out of it, um, but. But the one is not diminished in any way. Uh, it's the stuff is just coming out of him, um, 
and, uh, and yeah, okay, I think we got that point. All right, so the next step, because for plus minus there's a three-part system, the next step is mind. We had the one, now we have mind. We can know something about the one through its offspring, which is being. The first level of being, being in divine mind is divine mind or the intelligence. The one and many, or the Greek nous. Norman Geisler explains, of the emanation from the one, nous is the first. When the one emanates outwards, this eminent looks back upon its source, and there arises the simple duality of knower and known. This simple duality is nous. Nous, in turn, gives rise to firmer, further emanations by bending inward upon itself. So as nous looks back at the one, then it, it has simple thoughts. Oh, there is one. I am here. I am different from that. And then Noose looks in at Noose and it sees, oh, I am myself. Um, and it has, you know, kind of more complex thoughts kind of radiating out from the one. The mind has being. That means it exists. Being is a very fundamental philosophical concept, meaning existence. So the mind has existence. The one is too perfect or too elevated to have existence and being but the mind has existence it has it has being uh, and it gives rise to all other being in the least divide it is the least divided thing that has being and thus is the highest form of being so division for uh, Plotinus is bad unity is good mind is is one and so it's the least divided thing and it's the highest being that you can have um, and thus it is, yeah, okay, Copleston associates nous as the demiurge of Plato. The Platonic forms are located within this divine mind. So for Plato, of course, you had the demiurge who um, looked to the forms and then created and kind of was this transitional, sort of this transitional role for Plato. The forms are unchanging, unmoving, um, fixed forever. And the demiurge looks to the forms and then uses forms to create organization in matter. And for um, for Plotinus, um, nous is this you know, the the first being, this for, first force um, is what uses order and form and uh, creates organization in matter um, and. We have this additional step. Where where do we find the Platonic forms? Things like the the form of the good or the tri perfect triangle or, or the perfect circle. These are located within mind, within nous, uh, not within the one. Okay, so continuing on with uh, the Platinian triad, we have the one and then mind and then the soul. By bending in upon itself, the noose gives birth to psyche, psyche, or soul. This soul is even further from the one, and thus more divided and less quote-unquote real. There are two levels within soul. There is the higher soul, which is in contact with noose, and a lower soul, which is in contact with matter and animates it, that is, gives it life. The soul is the first emanation 
of soul from mind. It is united with to mind and also emanates all individual souls and matter. I thought I just said that. It is very similar to the world soul of Plato in the Timaeus, in that the soul is the formal cause of material things in both cases. So um, what we mean by formal cause, um, it's like a blueprint. Uh, Aristotle talked about the four causes of things. If you talk about a chair, um, for example, uh, you have the uh, formal cause, which would be the blueprint. You have the efficient cause, which be like the craftsman making it. Um, you have the um, the teleological cause, which is the reason that it was made, and the I forget the name of it, but the immediate cause. Why now? Why here? What what sparked it? What's the um, what's the actual uh, immediate reason? So there's these four causes within Aristotle, um, and What's interesting for our discussion now is the blueprint. Where does the blueprint come from? Um, and so for Plato, um, there is a world soul that gives, you know, there's order everywhere we look in nature. So we could ask, what is it that gives everything order and structure? Um, you know, from biological life to crystal geodes to, you know, weather patterns, everything has an order. And so for Plato, there was like a soul, some spiritual something that was in everything that, that took the forms uh, from the, the world of forms and applied them to nature. And maybe it was this demiurge as well that was somewhere how in, related. In Plato, it's, it's not really clear how these things work out. Um, but, um, and, it, and it seems to, to change a little bit from one work to another. Um, for Plotinus, it was very much this world soul that was in all things and then, and was the formal cause, meaning it was what was giving all things their blueprint, giving them their form. Human souls, each one of us having a soul, are part of soul. Now this is significant to say that it's not, human souls are not created by soul, we tend to think of human souls as coming into existence, probably at the point of conception or, or at a different date. For Christians, probably the point of conception is when when the soul, you know, is created or comes into them. Um, and uh, that is actually a big debate, too. Um, Tertullian had the belief that souls were actually generated materially uh, through the act of, of uh, you know, the, the sperm and the egg combining and there's other different Christian beliefs on how souls are, de are developed, and most of us haven't put a lot of thought into where souls come from. But, um, you know, we tend to believe that we have individual souls and they're created. Whereas for Plotinus, each one of our souls is actually part of this one world soul. So we're all kind of, you know, if you can think of a hand with many fingers, we're all kind of part of the world soul. At least we have part of us that is part of the world soul. Um, did I skip something here? I must have read this, but, um, there are two levels within soul. There's a higher soul, which is in contact with noose, and a lower soul, which is in contact with matter and animates it. So I read it, but I didn't emphasize it. So part of soul is looking backwards towards 
noose towards mind, towards pushing on towards the one. And part of soul is looking down towards matter. And so there's kind of this division between soul looking up and looking down. And likewise, human souls are part of soul. And we have a higher and lower portion within us. The lower is in contact with matter and is dragged down by it. And the higher is united with soul and in communion with the noose and is lifted to unity and ascends uh, and ascension by both of them. So within us, we, we feel this tension between matter, which is bad, which is dragging us down, and then this desire to be lifted up towards mind and soul, or mind and, and um, the one. So what about matter, uh, stuff, material? Unlike in Plato, matter, matter is not self-sufficient for Plotinus. So this is a huge change uh, for for Plato, and I think for Aristotle as well, the universe is eternal, matter is, is eternal, uh, it's chaotic, but um, the demiurge or the world soul or something impresses the forms from the world of uh, the forms that are unchanging, that are beautiful, that have order. He, somehow these forms get impressed into you know, matter and create uh, complex life forms. Um, but for Plotinus, matter itself is not eternal, but it's generated through, you know, these emanations off of the one. Um, rather, matter is produced eternally and necessarily by the one. Again, we have this word necessarily. The one has to create matter. It's just in his nature. It just happens. It just bubbles off of him, so to speak through the emanations of the mind and the soul. Matter is then the third level of reality. So you have the one, then you have mind, and then you have matter. As the most multiple and divided of the levels, matter is the least real. It is like a shadow or copy of a copy of a thing. With reference to the analogy of an image being reproduced, the further removed something is from the source of being, the one, the less unity and being it has, as Plotinus says. It is, in fact, one step away from complete non-existence. And Plotinus sometimes describes matter as non-being, as the privation of light, and ex explains Copleston. And he also adopted the Aristotelian concept of matter as the substrate of form, and as an integral component of material objects. I'm not exactly sure what I meant by that. Um, but the, the point that it's one step away from nothingness is and non-existence is significant. So you need to think in your mind of a water fountain. And this water fountain is hanging, you know, in nothingness. Um, and underneath is, you know, nothingness just blackness, okay? Um, and at the top of the fountain is this beautiful, pure, sparkling water that's bubbling out and flowing down to the next level, which is noose. Um, and then it bubbles and, and, and falls down to the next level, which is psyche or mind or uh, soul. So from the one, mind, soul. And then from there, it you know comes down to matter, 
the, the final level. And then it spills off the edges and just disappears into the abyss. Uh, it just ceases to be. It just blinks out of existence. Um, and so these emanations are coming off, but they it just it terminates. Non-being. Um, you know, matter is flowing in the direction of non-being, uh, which is, you know, darkness and it's a bad thing. Despite this apparent negative view of matter, Plotinus actually has a high view of the natural world. Uh, for, Pl for Plato, the natural world, depending how you read him, is a bad thing, where we want to ascend away and, and remove ourselves from the natural world just through meditation and thinking. Um, but for Plotinus, the natural world is a good thing. Over against the radical dualism of Gnosticism, uh, for Gnostics, you know, the, the spirit is over here, the world is over here. Spirit is good, matter is bad. Uh, Plotinus elevated creation as the beautiful workmanship of nous and soul. So nous, you know, is good. Soul is good. And they are creating order in the natural world. And so the natural world is good. And it, it has beauty because of, of uh, the influence of, of nous and soul on it. It is by and it's by contemplating this natural world that we can begin our ascent towards the one as described below. However, the world is only good because of the influence of nous and soul. Matter in the absence of rational of the rationality of nous <clears throat> and the organizing properties of soul is evil itself, and so stands over against the good as its ra radical antithesis. So let's not get too excited about the world being good. The only reason it's good is because the soul and mind are influencing it. If you took away all the influence of, of mind and soul on the world, it would be evil itself. It would be darkness. It would be chaos. It would be, um, be you know, the, the opposite of everything that we want in Plotinus' system. So what is evil for Plotinus? Matter in the, in the visible world is imbued with soul, and everything is thus, in a sense, alive. This is the concept of panpsychism, that the tree is alive, and the rock is alive, and, and I am alive, and everything is alive. Um, there is a sort of tension or battle at work everywhere in creation, as soul seeks to, order, to bring order to matter in accordance with noose, and matter resists the soul. So, Soul is trying to bring order. I'm looking out my window here at, at trees and rocks and there's probably squirrels somewhere. And all of that for Plotinus is soul trying to put order onto the universe. Um, but as we look out, we notice that nothing is perfect. Nothing is exactly, you know, there's circles in nature, but they're not perfect circles. There's squares in nature, but they're not perfect squares. Um, there's life, but it's, you know, there's sickness and disease along with the life. There's love, but there's cruelty and, and uh, tribalism mixed in with love. So in all these ways, matter is resisting and, and pushing and pulling against the influence of soul. And it's in this way that Plotinus explains both the perfections and the imperfections of the visible world. It is imperative to note at this juncture that for Plotinus, 
evil has no positive existence, but is rather the privation of good. If it is emptied of all residue of nuisance soul, matter itself has no residue of good in it. Matter is the source of chaos, vice, dark passions, and individuality. All of these hinder the ascent of the soul back to the one. So this is going to become really important for uh, for Augustine, is that um, evil is the privation of good. Goodness comes out of the one and it bubbles down to mind and soul and eventually tries to organize matter. Um, and evil, um, it's not as though there's a good God, bad God, as in Manichaeism. Evil is is all those places where the one is not, where, where goodness is not, um, you know, down underneath the, this fountain that we're imagining, is nothing but evil, is nothing but darkness. Um, and, and closer to the one, there's nothing but light um, and, and whatever metaphors you want to use, but, what, but nothing but goodness. And so uh, we're going to see Augustine use this to explain um, and, and Christians in the West that this has become very, very important for us, that evil is, um, doesn't have a positive existence of itself. Rather, e- evil is, are those places where God is not. And without, without God to create, there wouldn't even be the p- potential of evil existing because evil is just, is just good turned bad. So what about human existence? Entrapment. Humans are composed of pre-existent soul. Notice I didn't say souls, but pre-existent soul, which has been become trapped in the lower realm of matter. Each human soul has three parts. The higher soul, which is an undivided portion of soul, and a, why did I say three? It has two parts. The higher soul, which is an undivided portion of soul, and a lower soul, which is distinct from all other souls and is attached to matter. This divided existence implicates humans in the tension between soul and matter and is the cause of all human suffering. So for for uh, Buddha, I forget his, his other name, um, the cause of suffering in the world is our attachment to matter. And you see something very similar here is that we are all soul, we are all part of psyche, but we have a lower soul, which is our individual soul, which is our specific identity. And because this lower soul is so attached to matter and so attached to our world around us, this is what causes suffering. This is what drags us down. This is what causes us these lusts and temptations and and evil desires that cause us, you know, you know, cause us to do bad things or, or just cause us to be grieved uh, within ourselves that you know, why could I think such dark thoughts? Um, it's because we're attached to matter and because this individual soul um, is attached to matter. The lower portion of the soul contains all of the vices and passions which spring from matter, contaminate the soul, and produce the seeds of personality and of individuality. The higher portion of the soul is still connected to soul and thus able to commune with mind and eventually to ascend with great difficulty to the one. So we have this, this lower portion that is us individualistically, but we're attached to the, to the matter and, and bad stuff. 
But as as we go in ourselves and ascend, then we we can find this connection to the larger one, the the great spirit, and then that's how we can ascend into um, the one. Next category is ascension. The whole thrust of Plotinus' system is to provide a path of salvation for humanity. This is different than, um, well, Plato, it's kind of hard to know exactly what his purpose is. He's such a broad, you know, um, ambitious thinker. But it seemed like Plato was more explaining where logic and, and intellectuality come from. And Aristotle was very much, you know, trying to provide a basis for science. Um, and in more of a scientific way of looking at the world. Whereas Plotinus, it was more of a religion that he was founding. And uh, some people have said, I mean, just this random atheist that had a podcast, I don't know how authoritative it was. Um, but this this one podcast I listened to said after Plotinus, um, he kind of derailed in, in this person's thinking. I can't find the link of the podcast, but... According to this podcaster, Plotinus kind of derailed philosophy um, to where philosophers used to be asking more scientific questions and then they kind of turn in on themselves to kind of, you know, sit on a rock and meditate and and try to become one with the one instead of asking, you know, at what temperature water boils or something, you know, more scientific like that. So the whole thrust of Plotinus' system is to provide a path of salvation for humanity Human souls ought to seek liberation from their contamination with matter. This liberation is possible through ethics, contemplation, and mysticism. And that's kind of the order. Ethics, and then contemplation, and then mysticism. Mysticism meaning, you know, meditation or um, an attempt to have some sort of mystical spiritual experience. The first stage of asceticism is is achieved through sense perception, so through our you know five senses: hearing, sight, touch, smell, and feeling. Through perceiving the natural world, as one apprehends the beauties of the realm of sense, images, and shadow pictures, fugitives that have entered into matter, and then sees that there are earlier and loftier beauties than these. The quest for wisdom will lead the sage to purify. Okay. So first of all, you look at it, nature and you see, wow, it's beautiful. And there's certain order and structure here. And when you see the order and structure of the universe, that's supposed to direct your gaze higher. Um, the quest for wisdom will lead the sage to purify himself from fleshly desires to live an ethical life. I don't get why, honestly, um, within Plotinus, there doesn't really seem to be a strong mechanism to go from observing the order in the in the physical world to suddenly deciding that you want to live an ethical life. Animals don't live ethical lives. Um, there's nothing in nature th- that I can think of that really says we ought to live ethical lives. Um, it seems as though he should have said that we see within ourselves uh, a conscience that drives us towards an ethical life. But anyways, he said that it was more through looking at nature that we feel the need to have an ethical life. Um, The order which is imposed on matter by mind is visible to humanity. Humans ought to follow this order to its source and thus begin to contemplate mind. Here the sage studies philosophy, science, and mathematics. 
in all of these activities, the soul is of the sage is being progressively purified and moved ever closer to the one. So after you know your first stage of just looking at the world and saying, wow, it's beautiful, and then starting to live a more ethical life, um, more focused on being kind, and less focused on just gratifying your fleshly desires, eventually you're going to say, what are, what are the higher principles and laws that govern all of, of matter? Um, and so then you're going to start studying math. You're going to start studying, um, you know, chemistry and um, biology and, and different things to understand how the world is all held together. And so at this stage, you're kind of being scientific. In fact, you know, um, Plotinus would be very happy if you would take a master's or a doctorate in, you know, some natural study uh, like chemistry or, or biology at this stage. But that's not the end. This contemplation is not a mere acquisition of knowledge, but takes on a mystical tone. Human mind must identify with the mind. Knower and knower must become one. This is done through meditation. From there, the senses and even rationality is left behind. To achieve union with the ineffable one, ineffable means there's nothing we can say about the one. Ineffable is a word that means we can't say anything about it. Um, so to achieve union with the ineffable one, a soul cannot use their intelligence because the one is beyond all description or rationality. Rather, one must take a mystical leap and arrive at union with the one through intuitional knowledge and ecstatic experience. What that means is, um, you know, you're, you just need to meditate and, and cut off all ties and within yourself to, to, you know, do your meditation thing until you have just this experience, this flash of, of being connected with the one. It's not a rational thing. It's a spiritual, emotional thing. Logically, it would seem that this union with the one, okay, um, and so um, it's, you do study science, you do study the world, but that's just a stepping stone. The final destination is, you know, you in a Tibetan temple meditating and f having this, this experience. And the experience is the final destination. That's where Plotinus is trying to draw you, is to having this sort of a flash and this sort of a, uh, you know, a, a spiritual connection with the one. And Plato had something like this in uh, one of his books as well, where he talked about, um, you know, the cave and the experience of leaving the cave and seeing the form of the good in all of its glory. Um, and different, I think there were other times as well where Plato talked about these sort of out-of-body experiences that he had um, with, you know, absolute reality. Um, but certainly in... Uh, in the Republic, he talks about that with his, his metaphor of the cave. And so for Plotinus, it's very explicit and clear. This is the purpose of everything, is to get to where you have this sort of experience with God. Or not with God, but with the One. Logically, it would seem that this union with the One would be the end of personhood for the individual, as in Buddhism, in other Eastern religions. Something that us Westerners, as we talk about the New Age movement, and as we kind of pick and choose from Buddhism and Hinduism, whatever we want. Um, we don't realize, it's not emphasized very much, the fact that for, for a true Buddhist, 
when they finally get to nirvana, they will cease to be, you know, whoever they were. Buddha will cease to be the Buddha. You know, um, the Dalai Lama will cease to be the Dalai Lama. And they will just become nothing. Or they, they will become part of, you know, the talk about a drop, dropping into the ocean. And, and they will become part of the one. Um, I have uh, described it elsewhere as um, a, a, an elaborate form of suicide where gradually your thoughts are killed. Well, first your emotions are killed. Then your thoughts are killed. And finally your personhood, uh, you, you put your personhood to death. And that's when you finally re- arrive at enlightenment. Um, and you simply, literally, profoundly cease to be. Uh, and that might be, a, you might find that a, a very negative way of describing it, but I think it's accurate to what, what Buddhism actually is. Not the romanticized form of it that we have in our pop culture, but this is actually what Buddhism is. Um, and there's a real dark side to it, I think. Um, and you would think that uh, within Plotinus, there'd be the same sort of a thing. Um, but perhaps inconsistently, Plotinus seems as though he doesn't want to let go of personhood. He says at one point, Can we suppose that Socrates, who existed as Socrates on this earth, will cease to be Socrates just because he has reached the best of all abodes? Resorting to paradox, Plotinus affirms that personhood will be maintained even if the radical unity of oneness even in the radical unity of oneness with the one, stating that we will all be one, but we will be one together. So it doesn't really make sense, but he says it's a paradox. It's something we can't quite understand. So for Plotinus, the process of ascension is a natural one. For the one emanates outwards, reality expands into multiplicity, but then it contracts back into unity rather like an elastic band which can be stretched, but returns with equal force to its original shape. Although natural, this path is very difficult. The essential, the ascension is made entirely by human effort. There, there is no help through the one or mind or spirit. These things don't help you. It's only entirely human effort that, that gives you ascension. Um... The, those who are not able to make, to live this life of a philosopher cannot be saved, and even for the philosopher there's a danger of failure. As for violent personal sufferings, he will carry them off as well as he can. If they overpass his endurance, says Plotinus, they will carry him off. So some people have a tremendous, have a really hard life, really a lot of pain and suffering, um, and maybe they'll make it, maybe they won't, and that's just how it is. Anyone who is pulled down and overcome by the force of matter will fail to ascend, but he will necessarily be reincarnated to begin the process all over again. So again, we see an influence from Eastern religions, this concept of reincarnation. So again, if we can think of our water fountain, uh, and I think this metaphor is cl- is original with me unless I read it and I forgot who I read it from, but I'm pretty sure it's original with me. You can think of, of everything bubbling out from the one, going down to noose, going down to psyche, and then eventually to matter. And we're kind of caught between psyche and matter, between spirit and matter. And it's as though we're little fishies, 
that are in this pond. Now, that's not quite accurate because for, for Plotinus, we're actually part of the water. We're actually part of mind and we're actually part of matter. But just work with me here. So it's kind of like all this is, is spilling out and it's really rushing down this fountain and going, the current is, is drawing us towards nothingness. Um, although for Plotinus, if the fishies fall off the edge, then they'll bounce back up and get reincarnated somehow. Um, even though it would seem more consistent that they would just drop out of existence. But perhaps this is another paradox. Um, and so we, as these little fishies within the fountain, need to wiggle our way up through matter and then eventually to jump up into mind and then to keep swimming against the current like salmon swimming up you know, rivers and, and against waterfalls. And eventually we're going to swim up mind or up soul up into mind and then from mind we're going to keep swimming keep swimming until we take this leap and jump into the one and at that point we kind of you know disappear or there's a bright white light or you know whatever we have this mystical experience um, and so that's kind of the philosopher's quest is to kind of swim our way like salmon up this fountain that is bubbling out and, and pushing us the opposite way so let's, um, we're just going to have a podcast that goes over an hour. Uh, that's fine. Uh, evaluation and critique, and then we'll close with Plotinus, and we'll look at Augustine next week. Um, logical critiques. At this, in his article on Plotinus, Norman Geisler identifies two positive aspects of Plotinus's system and five negative ones. Positively, Plotinus's system highlights the transcendence and immateriality of God, and also highlights human immortality. Negatively, it seems to suffer from five logical flaws. I could probably say positively, it also gives a, an explanation for the problem of, of evil and pain. Um, there's probably a lot of positive things we could say about Plotinus' system, but we just pulled out two there from Geisler. Um, let's talk about some, some critiques or flaws. The first is the problem identified by Parmenides, namely that being cannot come from non-being. If one is outside of being, that means it doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist, how can it cause something to exist? Um, since out of nothing comes nothing. Recourse to Aristotle's passive and active potency doesn't really seem to help, since a non-being cannot have the ability to bring being into existence. A second problem is that in this schema, the effect turns out to be greater than the cause. Mind arises from non-mind, being from non-being, rationality from irrationality, etc. This violates the principle that an effect will never be greater than its cause. So this one that Plotinus is so excited about, really when you think about it, is not super exciting. <laughs> It doesn't exist. There, it has no being. It has no rationality. It has no ability to create. It has no ability to think. It has no thoughts. It is nothing. It is nothingness. And this is where Buddhism always leads us to is nothingness. Just nothingness. Spending so much time talking about nothingness. Literally, nirvana means nothingness. Um, and again, there's there's likely lines of connection and, and even uh, reliance between 
Plotinus and Buddhism. A third problem arises from the principle of analogy, which states that a cause will always share some elements of similarity with its effect. So the concept of analogy is that, you know, I might be the cause of this podcast. And the podcast is a very different thing than I am. I'm a human being with thoughts and rationality and whatever. And the podcast is this, you know, two-dimensional or one-dimensional recording that you listen to. And it doesn't change and it doesn't have thoughts. But there's going to be some similarity between myself and the podcast. And you're going to be able to find something that's similar. Things that share nothing at all in common with one another don't create um, don't have causal agency with one another even in our silly example earlier with you know a guy sitting in the library with body odor the body odor and the person are two very different things but they have some similarity and this is the principle of analogy um, a cause cannot be identical identical to its effects but for it to have a causal relation, it must share some of its attributes with the effect. Thus, for Plato, ultimate being and the forms caused all lesser beings and reality. The effects are not identical, but analogous to their cause. However, in Plotinus, the cause shares absolutely no attributes with the effects. It is completely other. This appears to violate the principle of analogy. <clears throat> it's like saying you know, a, a crystal ball in the library, maybe they have an ornamental crystal ball, cause the body odor. Well, the ball doesn't smell. The ball doesn't seem to have anything to do with this body odor. There's no no analogous connection at all. Um, and so how could that cause the body odor? Whereas this man, you know, <laughs> a student hasn't showered forever and is working on his term paper, yeah, it seems more likely that there's some causal connection between him and the body odor. Um, so likewise, the one seems so different than everything else that there couldn't be any causal connection. A fourth critique is anticipated by Plotinus himself. If nothing can be known about the one, why is Plotinus taking great pains to write about it and educate others? His response is that nothing can be known positively about the one, we can approach knowledge only in speaking about what the one is not. Again, we talked earlier about the via negativa. And this name, the one, contains really no more than the negation of plurality. If we are led to think positively of the one, name and thing, there would be more truth in, truth in silence. His writings are, he says, a call to vision which urge towards the one. So I've noticed that whenever authors don't really know what they're talking about, they wax poetic. And uh, this kind of seems to me like a place where he's... Well, he is calling us to have a mystical experience of some sort. So that's what he means by a call to vision and an urge towards the one. But really, we can't know anything about this one. We can't... It, it's, it's nothing other than some sort of a spiritual experience. Although nothing can be known directly about the one, something can be known about its offspring, which is being... Once this has been understood rationally, one can take an irrational and intuitional loop, leap into the one through a mystical experience. However, it seems that only absolute mutism and mysticism is the approach, appropriate approach to a one such as Plotinus describes. So again, it doesn't seem like he's really resolved this. 
if he wants us to have some sort of mystical experience with the one, he can't talk for hours and hours about the one. This is something that is totally irrational. So how can you talk about it? How can you teach about it? How can you be an authority on experiences with the one? It seems inconsistent. All right, so final section here is Christian critiques of Plotinus and Neoplatonism. As will be seen, Neoplatonism became an important fountainhead of ideas for Christianity. However, his thoughts would need to be significantly modified by Augustine and other Christian and even Muslim scholars before it could really be used. A problem which is probably more apparent to post-Reformation readers than it was to the early readers is that Plotinus' salvation is, in the categories of Luther, a works-based salvation. Perhaps even more pressingly, yeah, so this is, you know, Christians, especially Protestants, are very focused on the fact that we're saved by grace through faith, as not by works, that no man can boast, so this says in Ephesians 2.28. Um, whereas this is very much works, 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 works. Uh, and so in that sense, it's very, very different from the type of salvation that uh, Jesus has offered us. As well, you know, Jesus died for our sins. I mean, this is what it's all based on, is that Jesus died for our sins so that we wouldn't have to earn our salvation. Whereas um, within Plotinus' system, the the philosopher needs to work all his life to try and get up to the point where he can have these sort of mystical experiences. And hopefully when he dies, to enter into the great light. So it's completely opposite of the salvation by grace through faith. Perhaps even more importantly, it's hard to think of something more important than that, but maybe even more importantly, um, Plotinus's influence on Origen, the great church father, led him to see the Trinity as analogous to Plotinus's triad. So Origen, tried to, Origen was the first to apply Plotinus's word Plotinus's word, hypostasis, to the Godhead, assigned to the Father the place of the One, and to Jesus, the Logos of John's Gospel, the place of Nous. So you can see how somebody could kind of do that. God is up there, he's the source, the Father is the source of everything, and then Jesus is, John 1 talks about, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then we find out that the word became flesh and it was Jesus. So you can kind of see how, okay, there's the Father who's the source of all everything. And then there's Jesus who is rationality, who is mind, who makes the Father known to us. And so this is what Origen did to try and explain the Trinity. This was when, you know, Christians were really trying to figure out the Trinity. Um, and this was one explanation of the Trinity that was given. Um, this led, however, to an ontological distinction between God and Jesus, which led in turn to the Arian controversy. Ontology is the study of what is. And so when I say an ontological distinction, I mean a, a, there's a difference in, what, in the essence of what something is. There's an ontological distinction between the one of Plotinus and everything else. The one doesn't exist. It has no being, whereas everything else has being. And so and there's an ontological distinction with for most theists between God and creation. God is divine, whereas creation is not divine. So there's a, there's a distinction there. There's a difference. And so using 
through using Plotinus, um, Origen couldn't get away from this ontological distinction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It was built into the philosophical system of Plotinus, which led to the Arian belief, because Origen was a very popular author, wrote a lot, was very influential, and a lot of people that were reading Origen, also reading Plotinus, kind of seeing him through this way, said, all right, well, the Father is, is the source, and then he created Jesus, and then Jesus created the world. And the problem with Arianism is that Jesus is not God. This is the same as modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is the first creation of God, but he himself is not God. Um, and this has earned um, origin the name, the father of all orthodoxy and the father of all heresy. Um because his thoughts and you know some of the the terms that he coined that he brought over from neoplatonism eventually the church was able to keep working with them and refining them and they became important for later understandings of what the trinity was um but the first blush the the first you know use of plotinus to explain the trinity ended in you know this explanation that there was god who's the source Jesus was his first creation, and therefore Jesus is not God. Um, Neoplatonism was to yield rich rewards for Christian theology, but it would need a more skilled theologian, even than Origen, to finally harmonize all of the difficulties between the two systems. So I want to conclude just by mentioning a, a really quick and brief, um, quick and brief, how's that, uh, defense of Trinitarianism because, uh, and I'm going to preach on this next Sunday, so um, that'll be on the, well, it's probably already on my sermons podcast by now, by the time you listen to this. But um, within the New Testament, which are records of um, things that Jesus said and things that Jesus' first disciples said about Jesus, all of the New Testament was written within the first century, most of it within 40 years of Jesus' death. Um and Jesus kind of throws a question, an implicit question to the church, which the church then spent the next 500 years trying to figure out. And the question is, how can Jesus be God and yet not the Father? Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, um, Jesus said of himself, I am. Jesus said he was the son of man from Daniel 10 that would receive honor and glory. And for a Jew, only God receives honor and glory. Um, and Jesus received worship. Um, Jesus called himself the son of God. He was called the son of God. Um, Jesus, you know, uh, the high priest said, are you the, the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? He said, I am which means he said he was of the same kind as the Father, the same ontological distinction um, as the Father. So in all these ways, Jesus said he was one with the Father. Um, as well in Philippians 2, some of the first Christians were singing a song that said, although he existed in form, in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, becoming, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. Um, so in all these ways, Jesus was God. The first Christians worshipped him as God and believed that he was God. And yet he was not the Father. 
Um, this was one early solution that actually probably some of you still believe, that Jesus was the same person as the Father, that the Father left heaven, became Jesus, died on the cross, then went back to heaven. Uh, there's actually a whole Pentecostal movement called Jesus Only uh, Pentecostals, um, and others that maybe don't have that title but believe the same thing. Uh, and this is this is not correct. This is not Trinitarian belief. And the reason is because Jesus is able to pray to the Father. Jesus is able to say, not my will, but your will be done. When Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Um, and, you know, a dove came down. The, the Holy Spirit in the form of the dove came down on him. And Jesus said, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are not just modes that, that God takes. These are three different entities of some sort. Um, and so it took the church a long time to find language. In fact, they needed to develop language. They needed to come up with words. They needed to take words from philosophy and from culture and radically modify them. And they actually changed our understanding. The Christian debate on what the Trinity was actually changed the West's conception of what it meant to be a person, what it meant to be an individual and you know a human being. Because they took words like persona. They took words like hypostasis. They took words like um, homoousion from various sources, not just Plotinus, but other sources. And they kept working them and hammering them out, and things would go off the rails this way, things would go off the rails that way. And finally, they worked out this system. Um, and it's very complex, but the, the bottom line is there's three persons in one being. And this is what Christians have ever since believed. This is what the Trinity means, is that God is one. There is one God in the sense that the being of God is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that there are three persons. So each person has his own self-consciousness, his own ability to think, his own ability to speak, his own will, his own um, you know, perspective. But that they all share the same being. And I've said elsewhere, it, and this is a bad analogy, but it's the best I got. Uh, it's kind of like a Siamese twin where a body is shared, but the mind, the intelligence, the perspective is different. So um, anyways, uh, Plotinus was part of the early formation of, of that doctrine. Um, but the idea of um, the Trinity is the best representation of um, the biblical teaching on who Jesus actually is. So I hope that's helpful, and next podcast we'll talk about, more specifically about Augustine and how Plotinus affected him. Have a good day.